this morning, uh, corporately as a church body, God has something in store for each of us here today. It is His desire that we enter into His presence and that we submit ourselves to Him, what He's desiring to do here today. And so let's pray this morning that to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, strive to enter into His presence. Strive to get into that uh, we are able to receive from Him everything that He has for us. That's our focus this morning. That's our goal. It's to enter into His presence, to receive of Him, to minister unto Him this morning, as He will most certainly minister unto us. Amen. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. We enter into Your presence today with thanksgiving, into Your courts with praise. Hallelujah, Jesus. We do laud and magnify You. We heap glory and honor unto the Most High. Thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've given us to enter into the presence of Almighty God. You are an amazing God. You are an awesome God. We're expecting awesome things of You today. Help us, Lord Jesus, focus our attention on You. You are worthy this morning, certainly, of our full attention today. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us to focus on You. Receive of You all that You would have, that You would give, all that You would in this place today. We give glory and honor unto You, Thou Most High God, and we thank You this morning for all that You're going to do in our midst today. Above all else, Lord, that Your great and mighty name would be glorified here today. And all of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. <clears throat> We're going to start a new uh, series this morning. Uh, the fancy term is religion analysis. Uh, but more pertinently, uh, what we're trying to do is, you know, when we speak with people, speak with people at work, some of our family members, uh, they don't always see things the way you and I see them. Uh, certainly when I first came to God, I was, I was the only one in my family that had been introduced to these truths. And so when I tried to explain these things to my family, uh, it was... It was a little weird. It was a little awkward. Because they hadn't experienced what I, I experienced. Felt what I had heard and felt. And so, uh, fortunately, of course, I came from the same background as my family, so I kind of knew where they were coming from. But when I speak to someone at work, or when I speak with someone you know, standing in line with them at the supermarket, or, or wherever it may be, I may not necessarily be speaking with a, a, a German Lutheran. I might be speaking with a, a, a Catholic. I might be speaking with a, in our culture today, I might be speaking with a Buddhist or a, a Shintoist or uh, an atheist, an agnostic or, or any, anything. I could be speaking with anybody. And so when we're speaking with people, uh, we have to understand first and foremost that they're not approaching these life issues, they're not approaching truth the same way that you and I do. They don't have the same background. They don't have the same experience. They don't have the same understanding that you and I have. Now, of course, if we spoke to them, they might say the same about us. 
uh, that we haven't experienced what they have, that we don't have the same understanding as, as they do. And that gets more into presuppositions and worldviews and things like that. But uh, as far as, as, far as uh, being able to effectively minister to someone, it really helps to understand their background, to understand where they're coming from, so that we can kind of tailor the message as it were, uh, the, the, the time of ministry that we have with someone. And we're not, we're not trying to deal with stuff that just doesn't need to be dealt with. Uh, we can focus on things that, that really should be dealt with. And so, uh, the first religion that we're going to be talking about this morning is, as you see in your handouts, uh, Catholicism. Catholicism is arguably the first Christian religion that emerged from the post-apostolic era. And so, uh, there are a few Catholics in the world. So, it's good to understand uh, as much as we can this morning in, in one hour's time, where they're coming from, what they believe. And I want to say something else as well. When we're going through these different religions, it's, it's tempting sometimes, and it can become very easy to kind of look down on them, uh, to kind of look at some of their belief systems and snicker and chuckle and, and kind of make light or, or fun of that. But that is certainly... Not our intention here this morning. That's not what, this, what the purpose of this is. That's not what we want to do, or, or that's not who we want to be as Christians. Uh, we want to understand that if what we believe is true, and we believe that this is true, then what they have is some semblance of error. And so our desire is to bring people from wherever they're at to where God wants them to be. That's our purpose. That's our desire. And so, uh, the purpose of, these, uh, of this series is not to, to make fun of or to make light of people's belief systems, but rather to bring them from where they are to where they need to be. Okay? And if we can understand where they're starting from, it becomes then a lot easier for us to get them to where they need to be. It's kind of like when you're planning a road trip, uh, the directions are going to be very different. Let's say I'm trying to get to Washington, D.C., <clears throat> well, I can't really tell someone how to get to Washington, D.C. until I first know where they're starting from. If they're in Germany, the instructions are going to be way different than if I'm in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Same destination, but it's going to be an entirely different route. So, if we understand where they're starting from, it becomes then a lot easier. Catholicism. Now, let's start with Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. The Bible says this, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, de with defile, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands, of the elders, and when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups, and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. And uh, also we'll read from Galatians 1 verse 8. And that says this, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Amen. So, in this, we kind of have a, a really good starting place for what it means to be a Catholic, and indeed, most Christian religions today. I think could fall somewhere into this category. And even, forgive me for saying this, but uh, some United Pentecostals might fall into this category as well. It's not hard to do. And so, perhaps another uh, side benefit of this study will be to serve as a warning to each of us. Do not fall into these various traps. Do not fall into these various uh, intellectual side courses and stay focused on what's truly important. Ultimately, a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the origin of Catholicism is really a bit hard to pinpoint exactly. Of course, they would say the time of the apostles is the uh, start of the Catholic Church. But, of course, the doctrines that they, they preach and teach, historically, uh, they don't really match up with what the Apostles' doctrine is. And so, uh, this, according to the Roman Catholic Church, to say about their origins, Catholics that our Lord Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church in the three ages. Jesus appointed the, the Apostle Peter as the first vicar or pope, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19 are the scriptural references Catholics give to support this. I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Around the year A.D. 45, Peter went to Rome and assumed control of the church. This again according to the, the Roman Catholic Church. During the persecution of Christians by the Emperor Nero, Peter was imprisoned and scourged. He gave his farewell blessing to all of his flock and especially to St. Paul, who was going to be beheaded the same day outside Rome. He was then led to the top of Vatican Mount to be executed by crucifixion. Deeming himself to be unworthy to die in the same position as our Lord, he asked to be crucified upside down. He received his eternal reward on June 29th in the year 67 A.D. 266 popes have succeeded Peter since, at least at the time of this writing. Now, if we look at just a little bit of historical context that's going on, uh, of course, we, we have a, a pretty good understanding of, of you know, the book of Acts and the, the epistles. That time period was a, a time period of, well, the apostles. They were the ones who kind of led the church uh, into wherever it is they were going. Uh, the Apostle Peter, we read, he opened the door to the Jews. 
and to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. And so uh, we read about the Apostle Paul. We read about the, the missionary journeys he undertook. And basically, these disciples, now apostles, opened the door to the entire world to this new gospel, this new covenant. And the post-apostolic era. And so time period to the time of Emperor Constantine is an interesting, very chaotic, turbulent period of, of church history. We see a lot of persecution. We see a lot of uh, instances of martyrdom. We see uh, Christians being uh, covered with tar and lit on fire so that Nero could walk around his gardens at night. Uh, we see uh, instances of Christians who were captured being thrown into the, the, uh, the, the arena, the gladiatorial arenas, where they would have to fight starving lions, etc., etc. And uh, obviously that ended one way, their death. That was, that was basically the time period between the post-apostolic era and the time of Emperor Constantine. And the interesting fact of the matter is, although Rome would pour persecution after persecution on the church, they continued to thrive and they continued to grow. At the time of Emperor Constantine, the, the, uh, the enemy switched tactics. And instead of trying to destroy and crush this Christian sect, he made it acceptable to be a Christian. And that tactic seemed to work a whole lot better. We will find that after Emperor Constantine, uh, we'll go through, through some specific history, but at first he... He kind of made the, the Roman Empire neutral toward the Christian religion. And then shortly after that, he adopted it as the state religion. And so after that, everybody then needed to be a Christian. Everybody was pouring into the Christian church. Pretty awesome, right? Not really. Yeah. Because there were no conversions anymore. Just people professing to be a Christian. And that's, that's not a good place to be for the Christian church. The enemy finally found something that worked. And we'll go more into that. But there were, there were some struggles within the Christian church during this time period. Different uh, heresies were popping up. Gnosticism was a big one. Uh, that's the idea that uh, this flesh... All the material world is, is evil, and the spiritual is good. A corollary to that was the Gnostics. That comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So there was this, this secret, esoteric knowledge that, that people could possess, and that would save people. And that was only reserved to you know, the, the, the elite, the, the, the few, the proud. I won't finish it. <laughs> the jarheads, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so there was that going on as well. 
but the enemy really came into his own after Constantine. And so that was, that was kind of the climate post-apostolic era. If we look at a concise timeline of the Catholic Church, um, I'm not going to go through all of these. I'll just hit uh, points that are important. Um, In 52 AD, St. Thomas, who is considered the apostle to India, arrives in India. Uh, In AD 64, Christian persecution begins under Emperor Nero after the great fire of Rome. Persecution continues intermittently until 313 A.D. That's where we're going to find Constantine. Uh, St. Thomas was martyred at Mylapore in A.D. 72. In A.D. 100, St. John, the last of the apostles, dies at Ephesus. In A.D. 110, Ignatius of Antioch, some of you will recognize a few of these names, Ignatius of Antioch uses the term Catholic Church in a letter to the church at Smyrna, In this letter, he insists on the importance of the bishops in the church and speaks out against heretics and sympathizers of Judaism. On October 28, 312, Emperor Constantine leads the forces of the Roman Empire to victory at the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Tradition has it that he received a vision the night before. In this vision, he would achieve victory if he fought under the symbol of Christ. Accordingly, his soldiers bore on their shields the Cairo sign composed of the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ. In AD 313, the Edict of Milan declares the Roman Empire neutral toward religious views, in effect ending the persecution of the Christians. Now, I can imagine that as a Christian during that time, that would be pretty good news. I would take that as the Lord has saved us, the Lord has delivered us. but it's really hard to say because uh, looking at it post-fact, it seems quite the opposite. It's interesting that anywhere, anywhere in the world in any period of history where Christians are persecuted, that's when they really seem to thrive and grow. In fact, uh, in the book of Exodus, we read an account of the nation of Israel where they were being persecuted, they were put into slavery. And the scriptures say that the more they were persecuted, the more they grew. And that seems to hold true for the Christian church as well. We do best. We thrive the greatest. We are the most strong and most powerful under severe persecution. And it would not surprise me one bit that if the Lord needed to to usher in this end-time revival, He would put us in exactly that position. Because again, for one reason or another, we do best in that situation. We can't seem to handle very well ease and comfort and blessing. That's not a threat. That's just the way I see it. In November 324, I'm sorry, November 3rd, 324 A.D., Constantine lays the foundations of the new capital of the Roman Empire in Byzantium, later to be known as Constantinople. In A.D. 325, the Arian controversy is the belief that Jesus is not eternal but created by God the Father and thus 
poorer than God is. Controversy erupts in Alexandria, causing widespread violence and disruptions among Christians. The first ecumenical council of Nicaea, some of you will recognize the, the Nicene Creed, convened as a response to the Arian controversy, establishes the Nicene Creed, declaring the belief of Orthodox Trinitarian Christians in the Holy Trinity. The Nicene Creed goes something like this. It was a little bit more these and thous when I learned it, but uh, it's basically the same. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven by the power of the Mary and became man. Our sake, He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's the Nicene Creed. In November 18, 326, Pope Sylvester I consecrates the Basilica of St. Peter, built by Constantine the Great over the tomb of the Apostle. Okay, now we'll try to skip forward just a little bit. Uh, 83, 82, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> the Council of Rome under Pope Damascus I sets the canon of the Bible, listing the accepted books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. No others are to be considered scripture. Uh, 83, 91, the Theodosian decrees outlaw most pagan rituals still practiced in Rome, thereby encouraging much of the population to convert to Christianity. Now it's interesting that the, the pagan rituals didn't they were just kind of rolled in, incorporated into uh, the, the new Catholic, uh, Christian religion. <coughs> in 8400, Jerome's Vulgate Latin Bible translation is published. This remained the standard text in the Catholic world until the Renaissance and was used in Catholic services until the late 20th century. In 8431, the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus declares that Jesus existed both as man and God simultaneously, clarifying his status in the Holy Trinity. The meaning of the Nicene Creed is also declared a permanent holy text of the Church. Okay, um, November 1st, 451, the Council of Chalcedon, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, closes. The Chalcedonian Creed is issued, which reasserts Jesus as true God and true man, and the dogma of the Virgin Mary as the Mother of God is instituted. And we're going to talk more about these various doctrines uh, later on in the study. 8455, the sack of Rome by the Vandals. Uh, September 4th, 476, Emperor Romulus Augustus is deposed in Rome, marking the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The shift then is to the Eastern Roman Empire 
also known as the Byzantium Empire, with its capital at Constantinople. In AD 480, uh, this is believed to be the birth date of St. Benedict, the author of the monastic rule, setting regulations for the establishment of monasteries. We've all heard of uh, Catholic monasteries, especially in the Dark Ages or Middle Ages. That was instituted by St. Benedict. AD 502, uh, Pope Symmachus ruled that laymen should no longer vote for the popes and that only higher clergy should be considered eligible. Now, somewhere along this line, uh, this, this idea of clergy and laymen began to be developed. And that, that basically states that the clergy are the ones that can handle the word of God. The clergy are the ones that are trained to interpret scripture and the lay people... Well, you just have to take our word for it. Uh, at some point, it's it's kind of it's kind of a nebulous date, but at some point, this idea that uh, the lay people were not authorized to even read the Word of God began to be developed, and so it became very easy at that point for the clergy to basically institute whatever they wanted to, and we can claim scripture. You can't read it. In most churches, the, the, the Vulgate Bible, which was written in Latin, good luck reading it anyway, would be chained to the, the pulpit. Uh, and so it couldn't be removed. And so, uh, but getting back to this, this clergy and lay people, there was a huge separation between the two. Uh, may I state for the record that that is entirely unscriptural. There is no separation at all. Okay, we are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of us, uh, those that weren't born in the, or, or raised in this, we came in from uh, a Catholic background. We came in from a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, something along those lines. And in all of those uh, belief systems, this is this is to a greater or lesser extent believed. It may not be. Uh, actively preached on, but but the idea is still there. And so, uh, I want to make sure that we all understand that is not scriptural, it is not true. We are, all of us, ministers of the gospel, stand before Jesus Christ equal. We are all desperately in need of salvation, desperately in need of His grace, His sustaining power, etc. of us are. We have different callings, we have different offices, we have different uh, areas uh, that God places us in the body. Absolutely. But in front of, in, standing in front of Jesus Christ, we are all the same. We are all called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moving on. E590, Pope Gregory the Great reforms ecclesiastical structure. He establishes the Gregorian chain, which all of you know and love. It's actually, they're actually kind of cool. But, uh, yeah, maybe not for worship. 8596, uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury sent by Pope Gregory to evangelize the pagan English. In AD 606, Boniface III was given the title Universal Bishop. He just happened to be the Pope of Rome at the time. Uh, the word Pope means Father. In AD 683, Christian Jerusalem and Syria was conquered by Muslims. 
8726, iconoclasm begins in the Eastern Empire. The destruction of images persists until 843. We'll talk more about iconoclasm uh, when we get into doctrines. 8756, popes grant independent rule of Rome by King Pepin the Sort of the Franks. Uh, in the donation of Pepin, this is the birth of the Papal States, lasting until 1870. 8787, the Second Ecumenical Council of Nicaea resolves iconoclasm. December 25th, 800 A.D., King Charlemagne of the Franks is crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the, of the West by Pope Leo III in St. Peter's Basilica. Now, that wasn't a coincidence that they chose December 25th. Uh, that was Christmas Day, and um, it was very symbolic. It was a very powerful statement that the Lord himself was blessing uh, this man to be the king of the new, newly formed Holy Roman Empire. July 16, 1054. Liturgical, linguistic, and political divisions caused a permanent split between the Eastern and Western churches, known as the East-West Schism or the Great Schism, the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic churches. Of course, both popes excommunicated the other one, and uh, they remained excommunicated for a long time. They eventually rescinded that. Uh, November 27, 1095, Pope Urban II preaches to defend the Eastern Christians and pilgrims to the Holy Land at the Council of Claremont. In A.D. 1099, the First Crusade retakes Jerusalem, followed by a massacre of the remaining non-Christian inhabitants and the establishment of the Crusader Kingdom. In 1187, the siege of Jerusalem, Ayyubid forces led by Saladin, uh, some of you historical buffs will remember that name, Saladin, captured Jerusalem, prompting the Third Crusade. In January 8, 1198, I'm going to try to read this name, uh, Loterio de Conti de Signe, later changed his name to Pope Innocent III. His pontificate is often considered the height of the temporal power of the papacy. And um, it's at this point, it was under Pope Innocent And the Pope wouldn't let him divorce. So he decided, I'm going to do it anyway. So he got excommunicated. Well, now the people didn't want him as king anymore. And universally they decided... You're excommunicated. You're not even a person, let alone king. So no one would listen to him anymore. He was ejected. This, this is uh, a demonstration of the power of the papacy at this time. He came on hand and foot to the Pope at the Vatican. Once he got to the Vatican, he crawled on his hands and knees all the way in. The Pope wouldn't see him. So he went down into a room and he scourged himself all night. Then finally, the Pope would see him and forgave him. And he was restored to his kingship. That was how powerful the Popes were at this point. It's, again, it's considered the height of their temporal power. Uh, April 13th, 1204, the sack of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade, beginning of Latin Empire in Constantinople. 1205 A.D., St. Francis of becomes a hermit, 
phoning the Franciscan Order of Friars. You've read anything or seen anything about Robin Hood? You know about Friar Tuck. November 30th, 1215, the Fourth Ecumenical Lateran Council is closed by Pope Innocent III. Seventy decrees were approved, including the transubstantiation. Again, we'll talk more about that. Uh, 1229 A.D., the Inquisition founded in response to the Cathar heresy, which was a type of Gnosticism, at the Council of Toulouse. October 31st, 1517. Today's October 31st. Martin Luther posts his 95 theses, protesting the sale of indulgences. January 3rd, 1521, Martin Luther is excommunicated by Pope Leo X. October 30th, 1534, English Parliament passes the Act of Supremacy, making the King of England supreme head of the Church of England. Skipping all the way up to 1854, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception is instituted by Pope Pius IX. July 18th, 1870, the dogmatic constitution of the Church of Christ from the fourth session of Vatican I, Pastor Antonus, issues the dogma of papal infallibility, among other issues, before the fall of Rome in the Franco-Prussian War, causes it to end prematurely and brings an end to the papal states. Controversy over several issues, primarily papal infallibility, leads to the formation of the Old Catholic Church. This council was not formally closed until 1960 by Pope John XXIII in preparation for the Second Vatican Council. In 1950, Pope Pius XII defined as dogma the Assumption of Mary. 1954, Pope Pius XII declares Mary to be the Queen of Heaven. Now again, I know a lot of these things sound very strange, uh, to us, especially in light of Scripture. But people are taught this their entire lives. This is where people are coming from. October 11th, 1962, Pope John XXIII opens the Second Ecumenical Vatican Council. The 21st Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church emphasizes the universal call to holiness and brought many changes in practices, including an increased emphasis on ecumenism, Fewer rules on penances, fastings, and other devotional practices, and initiating a revision. I had it spelled wrong in here. That's what ecumenism is what I have. <sighs> Still a fun morning. Which were to be slightly simplified and made supposedly more accessible by allowing the use of native languages instead of Latin. I can imagine that was a big deal. Opposition to changes inspired by the Council gave rise to the movement of the traditional Catholics who disagree with changing the old forms of worship and disagree with the rise of previously condemned philosophies now being adopted by clergy and laity. December 7, 1965, the Joint Catholic Orthodox Declaration of Pope Paul VI and the Ecumenical Patriarch Athenagoras I Mutual excommunication of the Great Schism of 1054 against Catholic and Orthodox is lifted by both parties. Okay, a concise history. Now, let's look at the doctrines. The first doctrine we'll cover is apostolic succession. This doctrine holds that the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, 
And the bishops have in varying degrees the spiritual authority Jesus assigned to the Apostle Peter, the first pope. The voice of the pope, either alone or in conjunction with his bishops in council, is regarded as infallible when speaking on matters of faith and morals taught in common with the bishops. Now, this is, uh, this is kind of universally understood. Everybody, you know, you'll see memes about it. You'll see people of the Pope. Uh, and um, it is, it's an interesting doctrine. Uh, because from their starting point, the premise that they're starting, it follows if the Pope is the vicar of Christ, if he is Christ's earthly representative, then that would kind of follow. We understand in the Old Testament that when the prophets spake the word of God to the nation of Israel, that was the word of God. And, of course, there were tests to determine if it actually was the word of God. If it came to pass, uh, it was the word of God. But... Um, the, pro- the Old Testament prophets were kind of regarded very similarly. If, if they were saying, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, people stood up and they paid attention. And rightly so. Um, and so, um, there is some scriptural precedent for this. But to the extent that they take it, uh, scriptural. Beings are fallible. They are fallible. Even if you've heard from God. I mean, there are, <laughs> there are some humorous instances of, you know, uh, we believe in tongues and interpretation. We, we've heard that several times here. Certainly since I've been here, probably you guys well before that. Um, that's, that's a New Testament uh, practice. That's a, a gift that God gave the church for its edification. And that that, that supposedly it's God through them. It's being filtered through the, the, the person, but God's giving them the message and the, the person is, is speaking the message. Well, it doesn't always come out quite right, though. And there are some humorous examples that I've, I've heard people tell. Uh, one in particular, uh, Brother Lee Stone King has, has told these. You may have, may have heard these. One was, um, the interpretation was, things are bad. In fact, things are so bad, I can hardly make it myself. (laughs) He goes on to say, if it's so bad, God it. (laughs) We're in trouble. Another one was, they gave the interpretation. The interpretation continued to wish happy birthday to the pastor of the church. (laughs) himself <laughs> wishing the man a happy birthday. So anyway, we understand that even though God is, is using an individual in some office, some capacity, uh, we also understand that we are fallible human beings and that human beings make mistakes. God gives the message to us perfectly. Okay, That's not the problem. The problem is somewhere between here and here. That's, that's where the problem lies. And so, <laughs> and that's us. 
Not infallible. Jesus is infallible. The message in God's Word is infallible. Interpretation that we give sometimes, not so infallible. Okay, so, uh, that's the, the doctrine of apostolic succession. The doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the Catholic Church isn't the only one to hold to this. This is a very popular uh, doctrine nowadays. The idea that God the Father, Jesus, or God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, and, and consubstantial. Meaning each one is God, holy and entirely. And as it was explained to me in the Lutheran Church, it's a mystery. We can't understand it. We just have to accept it. And so, um, this is actually one of the statements that was given to me that caused me to, to start thinking that, for better or for worse, that wasn't acceptable for me. Um, now, I understand, you know, we can take that too far. But, uh, again, for better or for worse, that, that, that idea that we just have to take it by faith and we're not going to understand it, um, at the time that bothered me. Now, I understand now that there are some things that God does uh, we're not going to understand, this side of glory. And that's okay. He doesn't owe me an explanation. He doesn't have to consult me first before he decides to do something. This is his kingdom. I'm his servant. He does what he wants to do. He's sovereign. But the idea that, that there's this important doctrine, this, this idea about who God is, and I can't... It bothered me. And so, um, actually, who cares? That's not a part of this message. Um, but when it comes to the idea of who God is, God wants us to know. God wants us to understand. Now, do we understand him in his entirety? Absolutely not. He's an infinite God, and we are finite beings. So there are some things about God we're just not going to understand. He hasn't revealed himself in his entirety to us. But those things that he has revealed to us are given to us for our understanding, for our edification. He wants us to know those things. That's why he revealed them to us. If it's in the book, he wants us to know it. He wants us to understand it. And so, uh, this idea that, you know, some people believe in Trinity, some people believe in oneness, and honestly, most people that believe in Trinity, uh, they really believe in oneness, but it's, it's just explained to them a little bit differently is all. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to me how many people I've talked to about this that actually, they think that God is one. <clears throat> and so, so uh, is, uh, was original with the 12 apostles, that God is one. Later on, we start seeing writings in the, in the earlier church, later church fathers about this, this idea, this concept of a trinity. And that was made into doctrine in the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., this idea that, that uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are co-equal. They're all God. Uh, <clears throat> and at the same time, uh, they don't share any of that. They do and they don't. Um, again, it's can't understand it. have to accept it by faith. God has given us 
that to understand. And um, different offices, different, uh, different acts, but he is the same God. Okay, this idea of Mariology. The doctrine that Mary is not just the mother of Jesus, which is in Scripture, and perfectly legitimate. Uh, but the mother of God is what uh, the Catholic Church calls her. That she was born sinless, the Immaculate Conception, and has ascended up into heaven bodily, which is called the Assumption, or the Queen of Heaven. These things uh, we certainly do in Scripture. period of time, and the that only like this could give birth to the Messiah. Only someone who was perfect, only someone who was sinless, could give birth to Jesus. And because of their later uh, doctrinal clarifications as to who Jesus was, that by default made her the mother of God. <clears throat> Not just the mother of Jesus, which we hold to be true, scriptural, biblical. But the mother of God is something else entirely. We believe, because God is one, that he has always existed. He was the same God in the Old Testament, the same God before creation, wrapped himself in flesh, and manifested himself in the form of Jesus Christ. That's what we hold to be true. <clears throat> But because of their doctrinal positions on other things, Jesus being who he is, now Mary has to be the son of God. Or, I'm sorry, the mother of God. And later on it was decided that she was born perfect because again, mother of God, immaculate conception. There was only one person born immaculately without sin and that was Jesus Christ. That's the only account we read in scripture. He was born without sin. He had no earthly father. We've talked about this in, in previous messages. That transmission of original sin. The sin that we receive, the curse of sin that we receive from Adam, on and on and on and on and on down to us, was never transmitted to Jesus Christ. His father was God. The Holy Spirit, if you will. God himself wrapped himself in flesh, and lived among us. So, that was the Immaculate Conception. Mary was not immaculately conceived. She was born just like everyone else was. Purgatory is a doctrine that uh, the Catholics preach and teach. Literally, purgatory is a place of purging. In the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the state after death in which the soul destined for heaven is purified. Since only the perfect can enjoy the vision of God and some die in grace, who still have unpunished or unrepented minor sins on their conscience, they must be purged of such sins. Those who have suffered already, especially the martyrs, may have undergone much or all of their punishment already. Souls in purgatory are members of the church, along with the living and the blessed in heaven, and may be helped, as in life, by the prayers and works of their fellow members. This unity is the communion of saints. Prayers for the dead are therefore commonplace in Roman Catholic life. So most people, uh, if you're a Roman Catholic, after you die, you're going to go to purgatory for some unspecified period until 
all of your sins are taken care of. So, this is... Well, obviously it's not scriptural. Okay? Uh, And getting back to their their doctrine of of the separation of, of clergy and laity... Uh, again, it becomes very easy to start instituting these things because when they're explained properly, they make perfect sense. Okay? And that's probably... I, I'm, I'm going to use the word lie uh, because I think that I think the institutors of these doctrines were exactly that. Uh, they did know Scripture, or at least they were very deceived. But these lies, uh, the best lies, have measures of truth in them. Uh, And so, the understanding that um, because of other previous doctrines that these are built on, that the church has spared grace from Jesus, his sacrifice on Calvary. The church, uh, all of this, all of the grace that Jesus didn't use. All of the graces that the apostles and the martyrs didn't use are now reposited into the church. And the Pope and the, the bishops can extract that grace and give it to whoever they will when it's needed. We'll talk more about that in a little bit with indulgences. But uh, those kinds of ideas make sense of these kinds of doctrines. And so... When we get to purgatory, nobody really goes to hell as long as you're in the Catholic Church. And that is not really scriptural either. Um, We want to stay in the church. The church is predestined to go to heaven in the rapture. But how we stay in the church, I mean, that, you know... I can have a membership card to every church in the city here. And that doesn't mean anything. I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I need to be in covenant relationship with Him. And He saves me. And He is the one that that brings me to that state, that place where I can live forever with Him. Church membership isn't a factor in that. So, but... In the Catholic religion, if you're a member of the church, you're probably going to go to purgatory because we can't remember every sin. We can't confess everything. So uh, they're going to be worked off. Fortunately, uh, because we're still a part of the church, we're still in communion with the saints, uh, those that are living can help us with that. So they can pray for us. They can, they can do works in our behalf to help shorten that time period. Getting back to indulgences. <clears throat> and so, uh, this, is, this is a doctrine that they preach and teach. So when they talk about purgatory, that's what they're referring to. The next one we'll look at is uh, the sacraments. The church is a repository of God's grace, we mentioned earlier, and can convey that grace to humanity. It does this through the sacramental system. Uh, they, they practice seven sacraments, and these include baptism, 
Confirmation, the Eucharist, Penance, Extreme Unction, Holy Orders, and Matrimony. We'll go over each one. Baptism, we understand baptism. Uh, in the Catholic Church, it's performed typically as a baby as early as possible by pouring water over the infant's head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because the Catholics believe baptism removes the guilt and effects of original sin, baptism is administered as soon as possible. Now, in the Catholic Church, they believe that without baptism, you are not part of the church. And if you're not part of the church, you're not going to make it. And so, they, they get their babies baptized just as soon as possible. Now you're a part of the church. And so, uh, obviously, scripturally, we believe that... Uh, one of the steps of salvation is repentance. We don't practice baptizing babies for the simple reason that it's a relationship between them and God. And at that point, I mean, they're, they're not aware that they need a Savior. They're not aware of sin. They're not aware of the concept of right and wrong. And Scripture talks about this. There does come an age of accountability, as we like to refer to it. And at that point, you need to repent. Now, that age comes differently for everybody. Typically, at the time where you can feel sorry for your sin, that's the time where you're eligible for salvation. I've seen five-year-olds get the Holy Ghost. Uh, some have seen younger. So, um, in any case... Uh, we do not practice the baptism of infants because they're incapable of repentance.